I'm going to open up the Finance Committee meeting of uh, Tuesday, November 12th, 2020. Uh, Ronnie, could you do roll call, please? Yes, Trustee Abalata. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Chiquin. Here. Uh, Trustee Pugliese has an excused absence. And Trustee Peterson. Here. We do have a quorum. Thank you. Uh, do I hear a motion for the minutes, approval of the minutes? I make a motion to approve the minutes as submitted from our last meeting. Second. Okay. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to item uh, information discussion items. Uh, the first uh, report out is from our chief financial officer, Kim Miranda. Okay, share my screen here. All right, can you all see it? Yes. All right, so um, the first couple of slides are the uh, care or COVID funding relief slide. A couple changes since last month, not a whole lot. Um, let's go to page two. We did receive 77,000 in September from CHA. So that was nice to see. And um, we did have to do a filing. Uh, we did it last Friday and it was just a required filing and it allows CMS to get an indication of how, what the impact COVID had on us financially. Um, there's been a lot of new guidance coming out. I think I talked about that this over the last few months, um, whether we're going to look at lost revenues, whether we're going to look at, you know, losses from COVID or how we're going to measure it. Um, and currently it's, they're coming up with a kind of a combined approach. And I think they, they asked for that filing, uh, which was based on net patient revenue comparisons. Um, to see if that might be a, a better judge of how to determine, you know, who gets to keep how much, how much more money might still be in the works. Um, so I just wanted to give you all an update. We did file that. We did work with our auditors to do it um, in the filing. We excluded the settlements we got from the county um, that were received in the last part of FY20. Um, because it didn't relate to that same period. So um, it did improve the way the numbers looked. Um, but I just want everyone to know things are moving. Um, I have engaged you know, with our auditors. They have done some analysis that shows we shouldn't have to pay anything back for AHS. We're a little bit at risk for AHP, uh, but it's not a lot of money. And it's really, you know, it's kind of arbitrary to just, take June 30 as your measurement date because the pandemic is still going and who knows, you know, what the future holds. So uh, anyway, that's kind of a, an update on the COVID relief. Any other questions? Okay, so here's the COVID expense slide. We're currently estimated at about 18.8 million and most of that is coming from the COVID leaves of absence. There are 11.6 of that funding. There are other items that are not in here. 
um, most notably pharmaceuticals. Uh, and you might say, well, why aren't you putting those on here? The reason why I haven't is because they're actually being provided to a patient that we are getting paid for. So um, we kind of set this structure up based on FEMA rules. Uh, so there is the potential that they would say, okay, the incremental cost for a COVID patient is refundable. If, if they do, we have the information, uh, hmm. but it's not in this, uh, in this file. Any questions on expenses? All right, so here's the um, volume highlights. You know, we're just as a reminder to everybody, our budget does not contemplate COVID. We opted to just build a budget based on our run rates and what we thought was gonna happen next year and not layer the impact of the pandemic. And the reason for that again is we have no idea how long the pandemic is gonna last. We don't know how much more relief funding we may or may not get and it just didn't make sense to create our own crystal ball and then try to measure against the crystal ball versus our history uh, so we decided it's much cleaner just to do our budget based on what we think would have happened had we not been in the pandemic and then that way we know the actual impact of the pandemic so if you look at this, you can see that uh, our um, census and our uh, discharges and days are all down. Uh, you can see that our elective and ED cases are particularly down. You see that in the outpatient surgeries, and you see that in the ED visits and trauma cases. Um, and those are more elective. Um, in some ways, obviously, traumas are not, but uh, with people uh, sheltering in place, there's not as many traumas happening. So uh, anyway, um, those tend to be our higher reimbursing types of work. So that does uh, disproportionately impact our bottom line. You can also see down there in the skilled nursing that you know our, we have fewer discharges and that again is due to the uh, quarantines required. <clears throat> on the uh, clinic side we didn't budget for telehealth you know the telehealth was approved for the duration of the emergency or the pandemic and we don't know for what period of time that we will continue to be reimbursed for telehealth uh, again just to remind everybody the telehealth charges are less than the in-person charges because we tend to um, we tend to uh, build our CDM somewhat on what it costs to provide service. So if you're not needing rent, it uh, can be less expensive. Uh, it doesn't impact reimbursement though. That's just the way we charge. So it just kind of distorts the gross charge, which you'll see here in a minute on the next slide. And then I did, I started adding payer mix recently. Just it's something that I want to, you know, monitor if there's any shifts. And so, you know, we've now got the mapping all figured out and we've got a team that's watching the mapping. So I wanted to put it on our radar. Um, the next couple slides are coming from Epic. These are comparisons between AHS and our peer group. And our peer group in these slides is safety net 
providers in the United States. So mm -hmm. Epic customers decide if they're a safety net. They report to Epic they're a safety net provider, and so they would be included in this comparison. Mm -hmm. And I've shown this a few times before. You can see on the HB side, that's hospital-based charges to the left. We never, we did never, we never went down as far as the rest of the peer group. And that's because of who we are. You know, we've got John George that remains fairly full. We've got the skilled nursing that a lot of other uh, institutions do not have. And then they came back up faster than we did, but still not back to normal. And then you can see the week of the strike, 1010, how our charges really dropped there, the 29.7. And then now we're 12.5% um, below compared to the rest of our peer group at 2.4. So that's uh, what, um, I guess about 10% um, below where they all are. And the other interesting thing about the slide is you can see a cumulative variance there, 402 million. Um, and that's since March 1st, and that, you know, for us, we really saw it mid-March, but um, for Epic, they, they used uh, March 1st as a start date. That's pretty high, and if, in fact, if you took a blended, let's just keep it simple math, 16% as our reimbursement, that's 64 million net, which is, you know, a huge hit in net revenue, right? Mm -hmm. But I want to caution everybody from doing that simple math because we were going live in Epic, and we, um, I think the charges may have been low in that comparison period, mm -hmm. so it might be overstating the, the COVID impact. Is uh, John George uh, inpatient included in the acute days? Uh, yes, the HB charges do include John George charges. Okay, so it would, it would uh, by default, also include the administrative days? Yes. Okay. Those that are charged for. And then um, on the PB side, we are much closer to the norm. And I think that's just because we stood up telehealth right away. Uh, even though the charges might be a little lower, they're probably lower in our other sister uh, companies as well. So we track quite well with them and we're even above them at the end. And that's consistent with the graph I just showed you of clinic visits where we're actually 1% ahead of budget. And then this is payments. And uh, payments here, uh, the cumulative variance at top there is the 52.1 million. I mean, that's, that's, that's huge, right? <laughs> um, and again, I think that the comparison period is low. So it's making us look probably better than we really are. But we are doing really well. I mean, if you look at that, we're 42.4% ahead of um, where we were. And although others are also above the mark, nothing nears nearly as much as we are. And this really is catching up and stabilizing Epic. On the PB side, uh, not as much variance. Um, but again, you know, we are um ahead of our our peers and doing quite well since march 1st Kim, what, what explains the very uh, dramatic uh highs and dramatic lows there in the graphs well we're one facility and you know everybody else has kind of averaged out mm -hmm. so you would expect ours our swings to be greater than the average 
But if you look at um, the low point there, it was July 4th. Well, that's a holiday weekend, so we weren't posting charges or payments, rather. Got it. So something is that really insignificant uh, will show up as a radical change on the graph. Yes, yeah, definitely, because we're just, you know, we're one versus getting an average of everybody. So the week after that, we're posting and we're way above. That's posting for that weekend. We didn't do any posting and probably that week. Yep. Okay. Got it. I got it. That's you helpful. Got it. <laughs> All right. And then, and then here's our uh, results for September. Um, you know, they're not good. Uh, again, we're comparing to a pre-COVID world. Um, our net income is a loss of 6.9 million, which is a miss of 2.6. Our EBITDA is a negative 5.4, and again, EBITDA is earnings before interest depreciation and amortization, so that equates to cash flow. And on a year-to-date basis, uh, our net income is a loss of 18.1 million, 12.4 below budget, and EBITDA is 13.8 million, um, which is 21.8 below budget. And interestingly enough, you compare it to last year, we weren't doing so well either. Um, I don't have a, any, I don't have anything to report on that at this point, but it was interesting to me how we did start out so poorly last year as well. Other than um, our context and then question, Kim, uh, last year this was um, going into go live. We, we, we went live at the end of September. And so there was a significant amount of uh, time devoted to training, uh, end user training, uh, right before we go live, uh, both on the clinical side and the financial side. And so uh, there was definitely a, a, a lag in our AR uh, that was already occurring even pre-go uh, live associated with getting ready for go live. And so, uh, and that really was from July all the way through. So it's kind of accumulative, uh, um, is supported by that versus obviously a pandemic this year. Uh, a question for you, uh, Kim. So uh, just to clarify for the board, um, comparing to budget, um, this is to the interim budget, right? Uh, which was uh, 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 pretty much break even, where when we when we redo this, there's going to, uh, because the final budget was passed in October, uh, the subsequent ones will be, will be adjusting them to the permanent budget, right? That is correct. This is the so last month um, on the interim budget. Uh, you know, the, the timing of cash flows, uh, you know, you, you can see we, the budget here for our month is pretty much break even at 273, break even EBITDA. But you can see year to date, we're at, um, you know, almost 8 million. So uh, whether that's going to mean that when we do the final budget, if are, are those, it doesn't, it, what it looks like to me is we're not going to see that much more of a hill to climb because we already had 8 million built in in the first few months. Thank you. So, so yes. Um, and thank you for that explanation. I, I was thinking in my mind that we were capitalizing all the IT salaries that would, you know, may have offset some of that, but you were right, DeVecchio, the training's not, um, cap, you don't capitalize the training costs. You can only capitalize build costs. So, yes, that makes sense. So here's the uh, revenue slide here. Um, if you look at gross patient revenue, we are down 
2.8%. Uh, and you would expect there the professional fee services, because we're pretty much um, a little ahead of budget, that that variance wouldn't be there. But this is where you're seeing the fact that the gross charge for a telehealth visit is less than a gross charge for an in-person visit. So it's it's giving us a negative variance there because in our in our history we didn't have um, you know the lower telehealth charges to to trend. So that's why you're seeing that, and we didn't take COVID into in, into account when doing the budget. The other thing I wanted to note here is the um, collection ratio at 16.2%. It's slightly below our year-to-date of 16.5, um, but it's quite a bit below the budget year-to-date of 17.2. And just wanted to, to remind everybody that um, we did have a budget spread issue that will be corrected in the final budget. So um, that 17.2 is not a good comparison number. And yes, we're slightly behind at 16.2. However, we built in a lot of rate increases and the our budget software is not sophisticated enough to allow us to say, okay, Blue Cross is gonna start in January or Blue Shield in March and you know, behavioral health, we'll get that pick up in December. It, does, it can't do that. So we, we just have to deal with the fact that it's a blended um, average and we'll, we will be a little low during the first half of the year and then we'll come back and you know we'll give reports on how we're doing in regard to our negotiations. Um, the other variance there is other government programs the 1.142 again that's another budget spread problem in the interim budget and uh, uh, basically what we had intended to do is show the settlement money from the county coming in in December. We did that last year, we got 23 million. We've typically gotten the true up payment from the county in December timeframe, going back many years pre-me, uh, whatever was left to bill under the previous um, fiscal year. Well, this year we um, sent the confirmation that we always do to the county and we work with the county on how much, you know, we owe them, they owe us. And we um, both, you know, sign it and give it to our auditors. And that's how the auditors um, confirm the, the balances in our books. But this year, um, the county included the um, settlement of 12.9, not the total of 15.6. So to get to the max contract amount, which we figure we should get, we, they still owe us another 2.7, but they had determined it was 12.9 and they wrote that on the confirmation. So now the auditors of course are saying, well, if that's money from FY20, we need to put that back into FY20. So we're gonna have a variance all year. It won't be 15, I mean, it won't be uh, the full 15.6, It'll be the difference between the 12.9 and the 2.7 that I think we still will get, but that's still a substantial variance. That's like 10 million. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, just wanted to point that out. And, uh, and, and Kim, correct me if I'm wrong. This the specific contract you're talking about now. It's uh, health pack, right? No, this is the BHC behavioral health. Oh, this is BHC. Okay, thank you. Yeah, this is bullet four here. Yeah. And oh yeah, I see. Thank you. And it's in other government government programs. So. We had a budget spread issue. We were um, putting it every month. So that's why we've, we're seeing the 1.1 million variance. But the reality is 
we're not going to get that money in. Uh, uh, we were going to get the cash, but we're not going to accrue the revenue. It's going to go back into FY20. Got it. Yeah, that was kind of a surprise because that's not how we've ever handled it. So that was something that was unique to this process. And, you know, some of it could be that we're just more on top of our game. We're getting our stuff done sooner. And so, you know, the, the county, you know, had already had an estimate, so they wanted to include it on the confirm. Mm -hmm. Here's the um, expense slide. So our operating expenses are 89.2, which is 3.5 million below budget. You'd expect to have lower costs because our census is down. Um, there's really three areas that have a material variance. The first is purchase services, um, it's positive 1.7 million. That's being driven by two, well, two major things. One is a reclass. Uh, so we've been working with IT to differentiate between regular staff and contract labor. So regular staff that we are filling in is registry cost. If it's for a, you know, a special one-time agreement or you know, for some project that we're bringing help on, then that uh, belongs in purchase services. But we really want to get a handle on what, it, what, what the number of FTEs and the cost to run the operation on an ongoing basis. So they've um, done a lot of work and we've reclassed um, year to date almost a million dollars, 900,000, and it's now in registry. The rest of the purchase service variance is coming from increased laundry costs, which is COVID related. Uh, and actually, you could say all of it's COVID related because uh, the even outside medical services and emergency food and shelter that we provide is lower when our census is lower for seeing, you know, a fewer volume of people. And the other variance is the timing of collection fees. Uh, we are delayed at getting accounts over to um, our bad debt collectors. Um, it was something that we thought was automated in Epic, and it was not automated. So they were only getting the accounts that were manually getting sent to them. So we, um, you know, we've gone through this huge process to fix that, and we're doing that now in Epic. And then we also have the issue of the fact that we have to go dark for at least a month and then more when we archive our legacy AR files. We've got to make sure they're balanced, so we freeze them. And when we freeze them, we don't have up-to-date information. We don't have you know, the current payments people have made, so we froze our um, statements. Mm -hmm. So this is working itself out, but um, we are seeing some timing differences on some of our um, fees. And then materials and supplies, this is also COVID related. Um, and I talked about this when I, um, at first, when I started with the COVID expenses, they are missing some of these items that are in, that we spend in the regular course of business. Um, there's the uh, antiviral drugs that are specific to COVID treatment. We've, we spent 800,000 in the month of September and 1.3 million year to date. Those are all um, drugs that I, my understanding is we did not use or buy before COVID. And then there's additional cleaning supplies and lab re reagents as well. 
And the last item is, uh, with the material variance is depreciation. And again, um, we spread based on last year, which doesn't really make a lot of sense, but if you understand the way our budget software works, you can choose how you want to spread something, and that was what was the default. And so that will be trued up in the final budget. So we'll get that corrected. <laughs> Any questions on expenses? All right, so the labor cost is next. And um, uh, currently, overall, we're at 65.5 for the month, which is a positive variance of 2.4. It's being driven by a couple different things. Um, if you combine salaries and wages and registry, we are actually net negative of 2.3 million and 4.2 million for the year. And that's a direct relation to those COVID leaves of absence. So we've got, we're doing, we're paying our staff and then we're backfilling with registry. Now I can't tell you for sure if the registry always costs more or less. We've done some analysis that, that uh, historically has said that there's not that much difference in the rate. In fact, it might be a little bit cheaper on registry. During the COVID pandemic, I'm not sure that that is gonna hold true. We have to pay travel and a lot of other costs as well for these people. Uh, I think Tony uh, Redmond reported that registry was more expensive now uh, yeah, because I've, of the demand from so many corners, right? It's supply and demand. Yes, yes. So uh, I don't have the latest on it, but I would I would bet that it's probably um, more expensive than it was. And the last time we did the analysis, which was when I first got here, um, so maybe nine months, 10 months ago, it was actually cheaper for registry. So, mm -hmm. but I, I have a, a feeling that you're correct that it probably has gone up. And then in regard to um, retirement and benefits, um, the benefits is also mostly COVID related in the sense that our own staff are postponing elective surgeries. So we're seeing a lot less claims from our employees and then the retirement is a result of the actuarial report we received for ACERA. So we had higher investment returns uh, last year. So now our share of funding goes down over the long term based on the actuarial estimates. Any questions there? And the reverse would happen if the stock market fell apart. Yes, which that is actually why um, for the last uh, um, year year or two, year definitely, uh, our pension costs were so high and why our collection ratio went up so much. So, you know, it was 76 and 20. I, I don't know what it was right offhand in uh, 19 or 18, but I know when I was looking at the MGO report, that was one of the reasons why our cost structure went up was because those expenses went up. They're always moving. Yes. And then here's the FTE trend. Um, you know, we usually have quite a big gap um, in these lines, especially if you even go back before this. Uh, there, we did. Um, Epic is playing into the fact that the lines were a little closer there in the November December uh, time frame. Um, but now we've pretty much eliminated the vacancy factor, as I'll call it. 
and you can see that they, the the um, they the red line is going um, up, and so is the the blue line jumping around, and that's the COVID um, related LOAs going up and down as people are doing inter, uh, intermittent leaves, and you know depending depending upon whether kids can go to school or not. I mean, it's having a big impact on the number of employees that are taking advantage of the leave. Mm -hmm. And then this is the uh, balance sheet metrics here. Um, big change in the way that we are reporting our days in AR. Um, I think I reported back uh, a few times now on the fact that we used a 365-day rolling average of mm -hmm. net revenue and gross revenue to calculate our days in AR. Mm -hmm. And most people use 90 days. Um, the My predecessor or two predecessors back put this in place. It does have the ability of stabilizing the number um, because you've got a longer period of time. But most people want to use a shorter 90-day period so that you can immediately recognize if you're having an impact, um, if something's happening in your operation, and not smooth it out. And since we are now reporting the EPIC reports, I didn't like the idea of there being such a big variance. And so I've adopted it. Um, a little concerned because the end of the year, FY20, June 2020, um, you know, we still have audit entries that are going to impact that number. So I was a little nervous putting something out there in for the year end. We estimated what we thought it would be, but we still have audit entries that I'm not sure have been run through the calculation. So we may not be actually at 99 gross days. So I just want everybody to take away that that number is going to change, maybe not by a lot, but it will change once we run through the audit adjustments. Right. But for August and September, I've restated it. You can see we approved, improved a little bit from August to September. Um, the net day days in AR have a bigger variance, which we not, would not normally see. But this, again, has to do with the fact that um, we uh, eliminated the legacy AR uh, and it, it the way Anne explained it is that in the net AR number, um, we were slow to pick it up in our in the in the uh, table. So we're still trying to get through this. But I I think by September we got good numbers and we will uh, move forward with those. And just to make sure everybody's comfortable, I went ahead and included the Epic slide as well. So. Um, in regard to days and accounts payable, you know, there's not a lot of change there, not a lot of change over 60 days. So here's the EPIC AR days, and this is hospital billing. So this is HB. So mm -hmm. EPIC um, never combines the total AR in any report. They always provide HB and they always provide PB. And that was the setup that we decided upon a long time ago. So in finance, we always combine them, right? So what this is telling you, um, we are currently at 65.8 at 10.30, very close to what I just reported to you on a combined basis. Um, most recent, when, I, when we ran this report um, 
67.4 is a little higher. So what it's saying is our PB is actually doing a little better than our HB, which makes sense because PB is usually easier to collect. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't want folks to think COVID is the reason why we are getting close to being an epic top performer and no longer a bottom performer. <laughs> and I want to make sure everybody understands that because you can say, well, yeah, our um, AR is down because our charges are down. No, we're now moved to a three-month um, lag, and our the COVID um, impacted this organization mid-March. So we've had six and a half months of lower charges, and we're taking the last three months dividing by, by our AR balance. So COVID doesn't have anything to do with this. This is all us performing. Okay, so mm -hmm. this is uh, this is uh, really good to see. When you combine cash collections and you combine this, you've got the two best AR indicators you could have. Right. Good progress. Yes, they're doing a great job. And we did include in the uh, in the written reports the full uh, revenue cycle management. If anybody's interested, uh, it's got all the detail on you know CFB and denial days and everything. You know we still have work to do, no doubt about it. But we every month we just do a little better, a little better, a little better. Mm -hmm. And then this next report is the county. Uh, do to do from uh, just to remind everybody the reason why we even put this in here was was two items and that's the capital designation fund the 14 million in the middle and on the top and then the um, capital cost payable uh, which is the amount of money that we're turning over to Alameda that we're supposed to be able to get back to help us uh, pay for maintenance of the county owned buildings so these are now on our books and um i don't know that i'll report them every month i guess uh the future will will um will be what it is uh but i do want to point out that the capital designation receivable there that 14 million that is due back to us um, we did have that on the confirmation and the county will not sign it so we are still working with the auditors on that we're hoping that the audit will be done and posted to all of you tomorrow or, or to the uh, compliance committee. Um, but we're on hold for that one issue, to be honest. So what, what can you remind us, Kim, what, um, what is the agreement that drives that? Is that the uh, permanent agreement? Yes. So the, what it, it basically says is that um, we have to be compliant with the NNB and we have to meet certain reporting requirements. And so our uh, legal counsel here internally wrote a, a memo to our auditors stating we believe we met all the terms of the agreement. Mm -hmm. And so the, we, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I'll add when you finish. I'm sorry. Keep going. Okay, so we did put it on the confirmation, but the county uh, drew a line through it and said, no, they're not going to confirm that. So we have a disagreement, and our auditors were thinking that we could just put a reserve against it, but um, that would make it basically go away and net to zero, and we believe that we 
are entitled to it. So we got to work something out with the county, yes, but we shouldn't reserve against it because it's it's by this agreement says we should receive these funds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just a uh, uh, all of that was uh, uh, on point with a slight modification. So Trustee Shikwen. When we renegotiated the permanent agreement in 2016, uh, the thing that triggers all this is we agreed that we would uh, create what was called a capital or, or special purpose fund, capital designation fund, where after AHS paid off the kind of the lion's share of the pension obligation bonds mm-hmm. in 2016, but the lion's share of the pension obligation bonds were going to be done in 2018, I believe. And, um, and so then that obligation would drop for us. What we agreed to do was to place seven million dollars a year into a fund that uh, would be determined by both boards. So uh, the AHS board would have to agree on a, a purpose that was, uh, um, you know, mission-driven and strategically aligned for the organization. Uh, that that request would then go to the county, and the county would have to agree to it for the funds to be used for that purpose. So. Uh, when we uh, um, decided to go with Epic and we were coming up with, um, you know, quotes for how much it would cost and then how would we pay for it, uh, the administration asked the board to consider over the 10-year total cost of this, which was about, if you recall, about $200 million, uh, we would have about $70 million of that uh, that could be uh, um, uh, got that could be taken from this strategic reserve fund that we were going to start to fund at the same time. So $7 million a year that could go into a fund. If the board agreed to use it that way and the county agreed to support it, we could immediately turn those funds back around and just purpose them for funding the EHR. Um, you, uh, We presented this to you. We then presented it in a joint meeting between the county uh, uh, and and the board, and there was asset agreement that that was a uh, a good and a um, an appropriate use of the funds. And then we went through the process. The HS board approved the request uh, to use the funds for that purpose, and then the county then um, uh, subsequently, a couple of months later, I think two months later, uh, um, signed off on that plan. When they signed off on the plan that was when additional stipulations were placed on it uh, in order to get it. And that was actually then when the capital um, the capital uh, cost funds, the ones in the second group here, came into play. Uh, the re- request was, you can use them for this purpose, but in order to do them for this purpose, there were a couple of uh, obligations uh, that were not yet determined. And then you had to turn these funds over to the county. Um, because that caught us by surprise, we went to them and said, we were totally comfortable turning those funds over to the county. In fact, we were already planning to do it, but we wanted to make sure that the funds would come back to the system to be used for the purposes of uh, that they're intended to reinvest in the facilities that AHS operates. So that then became an agreement that's sort of reflected by this uh, that second part of the group here. We would pay the money out, the money would come back, and we had to figure out how to make that happen. The first part, though, um, um, to I think it was a set of four conditions that we would uh, have to meet on an annual in order to then be able to uh, draw down those dollars. One of them was we had to um, stay on budget, I think it was, for the program. Um, um, Second, we had to report whether we uh, tapped into the the contingency funds uh, for the project. This is all about EPIC. Um, It's an EPIC, right, yeah. Yeah, so it was stay on budget and um, I believe it, I, I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on the first one, but I think that's what it was. Um, 
or, or is report out the progress of the project, uh, report if you use the contingency funds, uh, report if you were going to um, uh, cut any services. So you had to give the county an advance notice if we were going to cut any critical services for the organization. And the fourth one was we had to be in compliance with the permanent agreement. And if all of that happened over the course of a the year, then we would put the $7 million in and we would get the $7 million back. And we did that one year, which was fiscal year, it was 1819, we put it in and then we completed it and we didn't get the funds back. And now we've done it for fiscal year 20, um, met all the requirements, which I report out on a quarterly basis uh, to health, uh, to the health county health committee, um, completed at the end of the year and we haven't gotten those dollars back. So. Uh, over the course of last year, after the first year, uh, with Kim now on board, we um, uh, started reflecting this in this type of reporting, uh, and that has now uh, been reflected in the auditing uh, uh, process. And so, as Kim mentioned, we're hung up on finalizing the audit uh, until we can get consensus that this $14 million has gone through all the appropriate mechanisms, AHS has met all the requirements, and it is an appropriate um, 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 uh, due to from the county to AHS. So we may not, we're stuck on completing the audit. All we have is a uh, refusal from the county to sign off on an acknowledgement uh, of these funds needing due to uh, AHS. Is that, is that correct? It's, with no explanation? Uh, I think their explanation, Kim can correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, they're not in AHS is not entitled to them because the county ha uh, the supervisors have to um, release the funds and so because they haven't released them then we're not entitled to them so they haven't taken action therefore uh, that's that's what I understand there um, so there may be staff may be concerned about getting in front of the board but is staff uh, committing to take it to the board you know, well, I'm saying staff has not taken it to the board and they haven't indicated any intention to take it to the board. So I don't think it's a, an accurate thing to say they're getting ahead of them. They haven't done anything to reflect it. So it's not clear that they, um, that they are um, um, intending to do that. And you may recall in a prior discussion, one of the questions that came up was, uh, well, you've gone live on the system now. Do you still need this money? Um, uh, and that I quickly addressed as the answer to that is not unequivocal. Yes. Right. So this is capital dollars, right? That we need for, well, it's related to Epic or is oh, it God. broader than Epic? Um, hold on. Um, yes, it's a, uh, it's a special purpose fund. Uh, it's dollars that we generate every year from operations, uh, we committed to putting $7 million into this fund and it's not capital uh, per se, it's for a project or a purpose that AHS and the county agree are, are um, appropriate. And that's why um, we viewed it as over the 10 years, the $7 million that we put in for those 10 years could be used for this purpose. So it's not just yeah, incredible part of the project is the entirety of the 10 years. Sorry, we have incredible amounts of capital need. That's why. Absolutely. That, so. Absolutely. Oh, the other dollars, so the, the other dollars in the second group there, that's capital for um, um, reinvestment in AHS-run facilities that the county owns. So that's what those that second group of dollars is uh, there. So the, 
Okay. So this is an unresolved issue. It's unlikely to be resolved anytime soon because it has to go on to a board of supervisors agenda. Um, so well, I'll put this on my list of items to um, encourage the next board uh, to um, address. Yeah, at this point, it looks like it may actually, uh, how, un unless there's some faster resolution or at least agreement, uh, that the audit or the ability for this board to finalize the AHS audit may be uh, uh, unfeasible at this point and may go to the, the subsequent board to have to address. Right. Unless we want to assume it's a loss. Unless you wanted to assume it was a loss, yes. That's, a, that's always a possibility. Wow. Okay. I, I don't think we should consider it a loss. I think we need to push it on. Yeah, I think people's words ought to be their word, you know. I, I, I would agree with that. <laughs> it's, it impacts our net negative balance. So. Okay. Any, any other thoughts from anyone? <laughs> Trustees? So what's the pathway for discussion with the soups on this one? Uh, so uh, maybe Kim has, has some thoughts, but uh, at this point, I don't know that we are having our, the conversation at this point is at an administration level. So it's between you know uh, our auditors, our external auditors, and the auditor controller uh, um, office, maybe the county administrator office as well, uh, but certainly auditor controller. Uh, because the other thing is, uh, I, I think um, our audit. Um, because we're in the consolidated treasury impacts the county's audit, which is uh, one of the reasons why we need uh, consensus on what we're reporting and then what they'll report, I believe. Uh, so um, I think it's just at this point, uh, we are uh, intending to reflect this to you. Uh, we're reflecting back to the county, as we've indicated here, why we think that our interpretation of this is the uh, accurate one and theirs isn't. And uh, I suspect um, the important thing to be at this point uh, if they want to revisit it, do we do it and can we address it at administration level or do they want to raise it to the board level, uh, meaning the board of supervisors? I don't, I don't know that there's anything for us or for you to do. Well, per the agreement, they have to eventually take it to the board. Uh, yeah, uh, we, we talked about, um, so the agreement didn't spell out um, the exact uh, precise specifics of uh, when they would take it to the board, but our conversations when we were coming up with the uh, four things that they really, uh, hold us to, because when they first put it in, it was to be determined what those things would be, which was also sort of a bit of a surprise to us. When we worked through that and we talked through how it all worked out, uh, we were very clear that, you know, we couldn't hold on these funds. We would be turning them over and our expectation would be subject to verification, which we'd be reporting quarterly that we've met everything the, the funds should turn over right away. And they, the my recollection of the verbal discussions were absolutely, that makes sense. The only thing that would be uh, uh, delayed a little bit would be uh, the confirmation that you did stay below the net negative balance for that particular fiscal year because it would wait for some final corroboration. Uh, but that should be like a one to two month process to close. Uh, and now it's two years hence. And for neither of those years has that occurred. Just a logistical point is that we do have a special meeting scheduled on the 17th for the sole purpose of um, finalizing our audit. And so I think we'll need a little bit. Yeah. So, so thank you, Trustee Abelada. So because it's a special meeting, we haven't, uh, we've been 
um, um, querying to see if we could actually have it, but uh, we haven't actually uh, scheduled it. I don't believe I could be wrong on that, but that would <laughs> that would be when we would endeavor to do it, and it was all contingent on being completed with the audit. So if we if we can't be uh, if we're not completed with the audit, then we won't need that special meeting. Got it. We also have a deadline to to provide our um, financial statements to the county. Correct. Okay. Yeah, really going to miss all this. Okay, next. <laughs> okay, so the next is the cash, um, and uh, you can see there in June. I was thinking, oh, okay, I'm starting to see the hit from COVID. You know, our our cash is going to go down, uh, similar to what our charges went down, and then. Lo and behold, it didn't happen. Uh, we started doing a great job getting uh, catching up, getting our claims out the door and reducing our denial rate. So, you know, the cash collections have exceeded what we had in our forecast, which is a good thing because we've had some additional expenses. Um, but anyway, this is uh, um, a great story to have. <laughs> I, I do yeah, want to point out- uh, success there. That's, uh, that's good to- Mix that in. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll take that one. <laughs> Good. I do want to point out though that we do need to do a new ZBA and update our contractual allowance model. I talked about this a little last month because it's been a little bit of a roller coaster to me. Um, and we it's taken us a while to get all of the new reports built in Epic because uh, we got to be able to um, differentiate um, the uh, paid accounts. And then we put them into a model to determine what our future collections will be. Uh, and that's also being used in the WIP fleet engagement as well, so that they can take a look at what net revenue should be by location. So mm -hmm. anyway, building these reports is taking a little longer than I thought, uh, but we're there or really close to it now. So by month, my next month, I should be able to have our model updated. Great. Kim, when do you think the le the legacy would probably go to zero? Probably because right now it's it's pretty aged, right? Yeah, so I'll come back to you. We'll do a full year report on how they did. Um, yeah. As you recall, they were about, I think originally I reported they were about 3% behind in collections, and then I think it improved. I don't remember what my second report was. I think it was like maybe 2% or maybe 1.8% if I remember right behind. Uh, so then I'll do a final report probably in the January timeframe on how we did overall in the legacy yeah. AR. Um, but right now I've written it off our books, right? So it, it's cash, so aged, right? It's not good. Yeah. Might as well write it off. That's what we did. So any yeah. cash we receive will just come in as additional cash. We're not allowing, we're not leaving. We don't have any AR left in our books. And we did that as a year end audit entry um, for the end of the fiscal year. So this uh, next slide is the supplemental programs. And I almost didn't include this because again, the audit entries are gonna roll forward. Mm -hmm. uh, we we had um, you know several significant things happen at year end, which I'll talk about in the next slide when I, with the NNB. Um, but I do wanna point out that we made the payment on the old waiver. Um, it was an IGT of 13.3 and it was a net payout to us is 6.7 million in September. 
So here's the net negative um, balance here. The blue is from operations and the red is if we have to make the supplemental payments. Um, some huge things have been going on, but that graph has looked like that now for three months or more. I was going to say the same thing, yeah. <laughs> it's not changing much at all. And despite yeah. these material events, we had the old waiver, I've rounded here, seven million. The strike prepayment of eight million we made in October. This is the September financial statement. So I'm not talking about the strike, but in the NNB, we know we made that payment because uh, we had to pay, you know, make it against the on our line of credit. And then we've got this loss of EBITDA loss, which is basically cash, 13.8. Mm -hmm. But the COVID relief funds of 11.7 received this year, the improved collections and the higher than expected measure A funds basically wiped out those payments. So we're, no change is really amazing. That, me that measure A is a surprise. <laughs> it is a surprise. You know, it's like none of us have- buying cars or something. Yeah. <laughs> We get some Amazon tax. <laughs> yeah, we do, sure. Uh, but it's amazing to me that the, the magnitude of those of those amounts and how they all net out. And then this last slide is a table that we're working on for the county. They requested this. They really wanted to understand um, these fluctuations, these big fluctuations. Uh -huh. um, you know, at, at year end, you know, we were able to pay down our uh, NNB substantially. And um, there's a reason for it. It's, it's, it's because, and I put them here because I don't want folks to forget, is the safety net care pool. Um, we ended up as a net winner in that. We got 15.1 million, but we're going to turn around and pay some of that back when the rest of the, the other two parts, the, the CPE and the DISH settle. So our, our liability went up in for the, you know, to be settled by year end, meaning calendar year end. Um, but it really helped us on June 30, it helped us by 15.1 million, which is, was, was, you know, great as far as the county and the NNB went. And then we also got the uh, HPAC money that um, DeVecchio mentioned earlier. They prepaid us 16.2 million that we didn't expect to get to September. So that hugely helped us. Why so, did they do that? Um, I think to help us. You know, okay. they wanted us to, to achieve the NNB because obviously it would hurt the county if we didn't. It would hurt their, you know, potentially their credit rating, bond rating. I think it was also, uh, yeah, I think it was largely uh, cash, cash flow uh, uh, mm -hmm. during that period, as you recall, everybody, or all of us were struggling to figure out ways to ensure that we had reasonable cash flow given that the volume was down and, and all these other uh, challenges that we were facing in terms of uh, costs for people and other sorts of things. So so the county, the state, um, um, uh, the federal government, all figuring out ways to advance cash uh, to to uh, provide organizations. Uh, so that was, I think, a, a big part of that as well. well thank you, HPAC. And then I just pointed out that we don't have HPAC in here for um, that uh, June funding. We've put it back in September. So if they move that up, that would help our situation with NNB. And, you know, we're then pretty close to actually making it, assuming, you know, pandemic. <laughs> we recover from that. I mean, if, 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 I don't have a crystal ball. But um, it's just interesting how 
how this all kind of unfolds. Right. Okay. Are, are there other questions for Kim? Just to remind you, you can see the blue line if we didn't make the recoupments and we got that 16 million from them, how close we would be. Just to, yeah, it's still pretty close, huh? Yeah. But again, a lot of it depends upon those, um, you know, those settlements too. I mean, right. You know, there's so is much it, unknown. Kim, is there any any clear sense of how the county wants to handle those recoupments? Um, they haven't. I mean, I haven't in my staff meetings. You know, they've um, you know they've assured me that they're not going to you know let us not pay our staff. They um, you know they want us to plan for it. You know, they participated with the call we set up with the state on, mm -hmm. you know, whether we could do payment plans or something like that. Um, but uh, I think, I mean, I, that's all I can say. I really, I, I don't know where, what their position is on them other than the fact that they, we haven't gotten a demand for payment yet. So, you know, we'll figure it out when we get it, so to speak, which is, you know, obviously difficult for an organization that's trying to plan for it. But. Yeah, I think that's the, you know, I mean, they're, they're major consequences. That's one of the big ones. I, I think also it leaves me just a bit the giant sort of accounting question because uh, I don't know how you can have um, liabilities like these not booked somewhere. Um, yeah. So they're not booked on our books. They are booked, booked on our books. I'm sorry, they're all booked on our books. We don't have cash to, to meet them. Yes. That's what I meant. So how, how can you book these sorts of things and not have the ability to accumulate uh, cash reserves to match your liability? It, it doesn't, um, I, I don't get the, I don't get the plan here. Um, and particularly when, you know, in a relationship with uh, Alameda County, when we have cash available, which happens from time to time, it gets swept back to the county. And so that money could theoretically over time have gone to offset these liabilities, these recruitment liabilities. Yeah. But the way it would work then is our NN, this NNB would be higher. Right. Everything goes against this. There's nothing, right. we don't have anything else. So, you know, it doesn't really, it doesn't matter if you reserved against it, you know, you, you would just have not paid down the NNB. So then this line would be up. Right. So something, you know, I mean, again, for those who will be around to deal with uh, this chaos, um, I would suggest this is another major issue that needs to get resolved. Uh, some logical approach to the NMB um, and the fact that the NMB is driven uh, from time to time by uh, the way we get paid and the way we have to pay back overpayment. Yeah. Yeah, everything it's just everything nets out here to the cash flow so yeah you could you could you could say okay we're going to take five million out every year and you know but unless you improve your performance and you bring in that additional money it it just bring uh, drives up rises right I, I, I think the big thing is we have to have assurances from the county that when we get to that red line that they're gonna they're gonna uh, back us in coming up with the funding for it. If they don't, we're going to have a crisis beyond, you know, imagination. You know. That red line is a crisis beyond imagination. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
And we don't, you know, we don't know what the state will do. I mean, we've, you know, we've told everyone that we don't have the cash flow for to pay this. And, and you know, we've talked about this before. This is from a long time ago. This is, you know, 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15. And it's... Um, you know, we're in 21. <laughs> we're a safety net provider. So, um, yeah, it, I mean. It goes the other way, too, Kim, doesn't it? That there's other other providers out there that are going to want this funding at some point. You know, that. Yes, there's uh, most of them appear to be the uh, UCs. Uh, but yeah, there's net winners and net losers, and we're not the only loser. There's others. So, yeah, that's why it's, on many. That's why it's not going to be forgiven. And um, it's coming. It may be delayed because of our current COVID crisis, but it's coming. Agreed. It's coming. Okay. Any other questions for, for Kim? Okay, not hearing anyone to move us on to B2, uh, Chief Operating Officer. And then there's a couple sub reports. So, Luis, do you want to introduce this? Sure. Thank you, Trustee Shaquin. Uh, in fact, uh, this is the report that will be provided to uh, the Finance Committee. Uh, I know that uh, my apologies for the header. It still says QPSC report, but it's actually the operations report that we're presenting to the Finance Committee that will be done by our uh, CAO of Ambulatory, Dr. Babaria. So she's on the line here, and uh, I'll kind of turn it over to her to have her walk us through her report here. You're on mute, Paula. You're still muted. Hi, folks. Sorry. Still <laughs> learning Zoom all these months later. Um, apologies no. for the dim lighting on this side. Um, and for the title change. This is my first time in the new format, so we'll definitely get that header um, teed up for the next time. So I'm assuming you guys all have the report in your packet, and then we'll also, I'll just share it. So if anyone wants to reference anything, we can look at it together. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I'll go through highlights, but please interrupt me, and otherwise I'm happy to take questions at the end as well. So in terms of the operational overview, a few things to highlight. So we in Ambulatory have really been trying to deepen our commitment to lean and process improvement. So our VP of Ambulatory, Catherine Horner, um, has engaged our sort of FY21 strategic plan using this lean A3X matrix format planning tool. It took me, I had to like stare at it for three hours in a brightly lit room before I fully understood it and can now kind of walk people through it. Um, but it basically helps us align sort of our true north metrics, which are on the left with our sort of key strategic and tactical and operational, uh, our key strategic initiatives, which are up on the top. Um, and then the sorry, the pillars are on the left and then the true north metrics are on the bottom and then over to the right there's about 40 different tactics that each roll up into one of our major initiatives for the year so as you can imagine for this year a lot of our work is really built around population health preparing for the next round of qip that goes live in january um, really solidifying and strengthening virtual care we know we had to do a fast pivot when we the shelter in place got started in march um, there's still a whole host of improvements if we're going to make sure that our video and telephone visits are equally accessible to all of our patients. Um, we're still working on the behavioral health uh, changes, which all of you are aware of, really having improvements in access and revenue cycle, partnering with Kim's team, and really leveraging Epic to drive those changes, to name a few. 
So if we go down to sort of the numbers and sustainability, you will see that, you know, across our clinics, primary care and specialty, but especially primary care, um, we are actually above budgeted visit volumes for this year. And I will say, you know, telehealth is the clear driver for that. It is amazing. We have talked in this meeting and QPSC for years about our no-show rate. And all we had to do to get our no-show rate down to zero was offer patients a telehealth option because um, mm -hmm. it really is so much more patient-centered and patient-friendly. Our patients love being able to stay at home, not have to deal with transportation, childcare, work, and squeeze in you know, their 20-minute visit with their provider from the comforts of their own home or workplace. Um, so our no-show rates for clinics that are booked via telehealth is almost zero. It's not quite zero. Sometimes we have a disconnected number or two, uh, but we're almost always able to reach all of those patients. And so that's what's driving some of these remarkable numbers that you are seeing. Um, we are slowly ramping back up. We've delayed a lot of care in both primary care and specialty, largely procedural um, visits that so the proportion of patients we're scheduling to be in person is increasing and we are seeing no-show rates increase as a result of those changes. Uh, this is Taft. Quick question. Can you give me a little bit of insights on any national dialogues on pay parity for um, uh, televisits versus uh, standard in-person visits? Where's that yeah, dialogue going? That's, um, that's a great question. And I don't know if I think Tangerine's on this call too. She can probably um, weigh in on the policy angle better than I can. But from what I've heard, you know, in current state, we get paid the same amount for both telephone and video visits as we do for in-person office visit. And that includes not just our primary payer, whether that's managed Medi-Cal or otherwise, but also the FQHC wraparound rate, which the federal government had to recognize. And we all remember for FQ clinics, the bulk of the payment does come um, from that wraparound rate. So at the federal level, I have not actually heard of much dialogue about continuing that pay parity, including for FQ beyond um, the federal emergency period, which is going to expire at some point. Um, I'm optimistic that given the results of the election and hopefully with changes that may happen in CMS in the new year, that there may be more interest in alternative payment models and that kind of dialogue. There had been a bill, I understand, in front of Governor Newsom to sort of enshrine that pay parity, um, which I think would have affected the primary payers, but not necessarily the FQ wraparound piece of it, uh, which was not signed for a variety of reasons. And so, you know, we'll see where the dialogue goes. I personally feel that We'll see if we can get telephone visits in there. You know, I think there's a lot of reasons certainly to have better pay parity or and certainly higher payments for telehealth than we have right now. A lot of the arguments previously have been that, you know, video visits are a much more robust method, obviously, clinically and operationally for the patient compared to telephone. And that is why traditionally outside of this um, public health emergency, telephone visits have never been reimbursed, even under some of the telehealth legislation that's gone through the state. Tangerine, you comment on and want to oh, add to that. No, the only thing I would add is that the state actually is looking into this issue, even though um, the governor did not sign uh, the bill. Um, they have formed within health a committee specifically looking at um, what might be feasible um, for extended telehealth reimbursement under the current construct, and more importantly, what that cost would be uh, given the fact that there might not be federal dollars um, to continue with. Thanks, Tangerine. Paul, next question to you. You know, our, our, our operational models, our historic models are, um, and our staffing models are built on um, in-person visits. Can you, can you make comment about 
how this is making you uh, think about new paradigms of staffing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think as soon as we get certainty, we could probably, you know, make more firm commitments to the model. Interestingly, there are some functions that require the same amount of staffing, whether you're doing telehealth or in-person care. So our registration, patient consent, um, all of that has to be done even for telephone and video visits, patient scheduling. So for the most part, our front desk staff and our scheduling staff are just as busy now as if not more so because for the provider who's doing a phone visit, you know, normally the patient would just stop by the front desk, make an appointment, be done. Now people are having to call that patient two, three times to sometimes schedule, register. Um, So some functions are actually taking more time than they did before all of this. Other functions you can imagine like nursing, medical assistance, back office, clinical functions. Um, There's much more excess time because if patients aren't coming in, you're not having to do all of the same functions. So I think if we knew that telehealth was going to be around forever, we would probably change the ratio of the staff we had. Um, You may not need as many staff or you may choose to deploy them in different ways. When I come back in three months, we will probably be in the thick of the new QIP and you'll be hearing from me how the new $60 million payment program is hinged on us reaching all of our assigned but not seen patients. And so that is a tremendous amount of outreach that we've never had to do before. So you could make much smarter allocations of the staff that we do have for functions that maybe are better for patients and outreach. Cool. Thanks, Paul. So we're doing some micro pilots right now to sort of better understand that. But I think, you know, having some certainty, whether it's at the state or federal level as to what's going to happen with telehealth payment will be really critical. Dr. Barbaria, I also had a question about whether we've started to look at um, our patients that don't have technology, you know, equipping them um, or even with self-management like blood pressure monitoring, blood glucose or other kinds of ways that we can equip our patients for more self-management since obviously we don't have them coming in to get vitals and other things like point of care, things like that. Absolutely. Great. I'm so glad that you asked that question. So we've had um, a number of pilots going as soon as shelter-in-place hit really since March to get at exactly that question. So on the clinical side, um, we had a number of blood pressure pilots where we were you know, connecting patients, sending them blood pressure cuffs through the DME vendor, having patients check blood pressure at home, titrating meds over the phone with either our nurses or their provider, and then having them come in. More recently, Anthem Blue Cross, one of our managed Medi-Cal plans, has put together similar sort of patient kits that include not just a blood pressure cuff, but blood glucose information, the scale, tape measure. Um, So we've been identifying patients that would benefit from that package and connecting them and working with Anthem Blue Cross on that outreach. We had about eight different sort of population health level interventions spanning pediatric ADHD medication refills during the shelter in place to pediatric curbside vaccinations, postnatal care, the virtual blood pressure pilot, um, and then there's one more, oh, screening for social determinants of health and sort of food insecurity, especially as people lost their jobs. Uh, really exciting that we were able to package that and submit it for a quality leaders award application for CAPH. We were not selected, but if any of you want to read the application, I think it really showcases a lot of that amazing work. Um, And then on the tech side specifically, Jenny Cohen, who is our associate CMIO, applied um, with Tangerine support for a great grant from CHCF. And we are going to be launching something called the Tech Advocates, who are going to be a group of people specifically dedicated to helping our patients assess what their both software, hardware, and training needs may be, connect them to resources within the community, elsewhere in the organization, so that we can get to a place where all of our patients are 
able to really take advantage of both my chart as well as any virtual care that we have because we know you know there is a digital divide out there and without proactive efforts to address that we will only engender more disparities than we already have in our system fantastic thank you Okay, great. So this gets at a little bit, um, you know, so we saw the great volume increases as I talked through. There are some classifications where we've definitely had an increased work, others where uh, we haven't had many needs with our mix of virtual care. Similar to probably a lot of other areas you are seeing, we have been pretty hit pretty hard with a lot of the COVID FMLA related leaves of absences from our frontline staff and some providers, although mostly staff. Um, so in some areas we've been able to actually flex down and due to you know virtual care, double up assignments where one MA instead of supporting one provider is now supporting two providers given the mix of telehealth. But in other areas to keep the clinics open and running, we've definitely had to backfill. So you will see that where we are several hundred thousand dollars above budget, it is largely because of backfilling those staff and providers who are on leave, although we still remain you know, more uh, at goal when we're looking at our flex budget comparatively. Any questions on any of those? And then we've also launched, you know, operational meetings uh, with Louisa's support and finances support, where we are now look, doing deeper dives into each of our cost centers with our managers and operational leaders, really focused on these metrics. So looking at registration errors, um, now that we can track those very efficiently in Epic so that we can get those resolved, get the claims out the door, looking at charge entry, reconciling any encounters that have missing charges. Um, one of our managers, you know, Taft can attest to, because he works in this clinical area, will find all the outstanding documentation and notes and work with the providers to clean them up and sends a weekly scorecard to everyone with how their clinical service line is doing. And it's, you know, been great. And we've seen market improvements so that we don't have encounters with missing charges that are lagging for many months. We continue to look at expense management, um, especially based off of the productive hours and then working on the back end piece for revenue improvement. So, you know, dental, I think, is a great example and looking at RVUs um, by different service lines to see what opportunities we have there to capture um, revenue for things that we're already doing, especially. Um, and then you'll see in the dashboard, which you also have in the packet, you know, I think for all the metrics that we are tracking financially, uh, we're doing well, we're within our targets. The errors in registration at the point that this data was pulled was shortly after our uh, worker strike. And so that is why those errors piled up because even though, you know, our managers and supervisors were trying to get through as much work as possible those five days, there were gaps and they were prioritizing the frontline clinical care over some of these work queues. Since that time, we've been looking and the work queues have come back down to goal. Um, and I did put access in here. I remember when I first presented to QPSC three and a half years ago, and we looked at some of, especially the specialty access, um, and there were some specialty services that our patients were waiting for two years for. Um, across the board, our specialties have had market improvements. And I will say the launch of eConsult with Epic has been one of the biggest driving factors. So we have some superstar 
um, service lines that are handling, you know, anywhere from 20 to 40% of their volume via e-consult now. GI is one that consistently um, handles a lot of patients via e-consult back and forth. And that has freed up our precious specialty access for the patients that need it most. And so if you look at the left column, the TNA and days, that includes the backlog from both internal referrals and patients waiting to be scheduled, as well as CHCN referrals. And you'll see this, I think I pulled this together last week, the ref track count is zero. And that is because RefTrack, which was our antiquated external referral system, is now gone forever. Um, and we have now switched all of our community partners over to Epic Care Link, which is part of our Epic platform. So everything can be within one system. And so for every single service line, patients are all seen you know, within a month or so. And for some of the service lines, patients are consistently getting same week appointments for new patients. Any questions about that before I move on? Paul, I, uh, you know, I, I think that's one of the, you know, you know, three years ago, we hit the best access we had for primary care. I think we're starting to see that now starting to come to fruition with specialty care, which is a super big deal for our system. I, my personal opinion is that that televisits have bent the curve significantly because exactly because of what you said before, which was, uh, you know, uh, no show rates had been variable from 10 to 50%. Uh, now they're 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 very very low, and we're really uh, uh, utilizing efficiently those those slots. So, um, uh, congratulations to uh, to the ambulatory team for helping get specialty access. This this was all red a couple of years ago. Yeah, thank you so much, Tafton. You know, it's a huge lesson in. It took a pandemic to get here, but we are finally starting to build our systems in the way that the patients want them. You know, and one could have argued healthcare should have done that 50 years ago, but better late than never. Um, so, in terms of quality, you know, I referenced this before. Um, Hopefully, we'll have more to report on this, and you'll see in the quality in the dashboards that you have in the packet, most of our quality metrics are in the red. And so this is a trend that, you know, all the sites in our clinic are experiencing, talking to partners across the state and the nation. Um, COVID-19 has put a significant dent into our quality metrics. It has, you know, when you look nationwide, the number of pediatric um, vaccinations that we are behind compared to one year ago, there have been reported outbreaks of certain preventable childhood illnesses due to poor vaccination rates. Um, even though we've been doing some of these blood pressure pilots and trying to get more virtual care off the ground, you know, our system is hardwired for patients coming in, getting getting their diabetes tests, getting their medications, getting weighed. Um, and so this is going to require a complete reimagining of how we tackle all of our preventive care and our chronic disease management. Um, so I've listed here some of the initiatives that I referenced earlier where we're really going back to the drawing board and saying, you know, what do our patients need and what is going to be our menu of offerings so that we can get that to the patient in whatever way they prefer. And sometimes that may be an office visit and other times it may be the postal service or a curbside vaccination or mailing them something or having them go to their lab and then following up virtually. Um, so we are doing all of that planning work right now. We're rethinking our sort of quality improvement strategy across ambulatory to be much, you know, still being clinic focused, but then also layering on a population health focus that is not just in-person based and seeing how we can leverage technology um, to reach that. So I'm hoping the next time I see you all, I will have a lot of exciting updates in this arena. I think that was the last page. Um, so let me 
stop sharing. I'm happy to take other questions or things I didn't present on that you all are wondering about. Well, I, I would, I would just say, if I, if I may, Tristan Shaquin, that uh, you know, it, it's been, it's been impressive to see the work that uh, uh, Ambulatory has been able to do over the last several years. This has been a journey. It's not, it, it certainly has not been a sprint, um, but really, under the leadership of Dr. Bavaria and the team, uh, we've really transformed the way we provide care in all of our clinics and the improvements that we're seeing now, and we'll continue to see. You know, with uh, you know our new systems, our new processes, with the greater transparency that we have. Uh, the data capture that we have, it's really having a, a material impact on how we're delivering care to all of our, our patients. So again, I just can't say enough about the great work that uh, uh, that Dr. Balbaria and her team are doing and, and, and certainly kudos to them to continue to move that forward. Thank you, Luis. Yeah, it's more good news. Thank you. Good to see that. Thank you all. I do, oh, I do, wonder, I do wonder about the... Um, <laughs> I got to find some better way to say this, but it's sort of the stickiness thing, right? So we're in a crisis. There's been changes. There's telemedicine now, um, which has accidentally increased our access. Um, What happens once we can meet in person again? Are are we just going to, how do we make sure that we can get the behavior of our staff and of our patients to, stay consistent with uh, this progress? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, some of it is hardwired, like e-consults we launched with Epic, and now we've been doing them for close to a year, had nothing to do with the pandemic. It just was fortuitous that we had Epic, and that got launched, you know, ahead of time. Um, So I think there's some things that, you know, us, Tafta Wayne as a specialist, our specialists, I think, universally have been really happy with e-consult. I know the referring providers are are thrilled beyond belief every time they get that lovely message back from the specialist. And then I think there's a lot of other systems that we can learn from. So the work we're doing right now is we're launching a Kaizen next week to come up with what our standard work looks like for virtual care and what are the best practices, you know, again, that we need to embed and hardwire now so that even if that ratio of virtual care to in-person changes over time, which it's probably going to happen even if we go into a surge for COVID-19, there's going to be times we need more in-person, less virtual, you know, virtual is not going to go away. Even if the state says you're going to get paid $10 or whatever, we're going to have to maintain some virtual access. And there are systems like Kaiser and elsewhere that have done this for decades. And so, you know, there are best practices. You put those appointments at the start of the session so they don't mess up flow. You make the durations shorter. You have better triage. So you're not putting complicated patients in those appointments. So we're figuring out all of that standard work now so we just practice it and that, you know, as we need to adjust the ratio, we can do that. But that's the basic foundation of the types um, of modalities that our patients access care can stay with us forever. Great. Well, uh, I'm glad you're involved in it. <laughs> yeah, I guess no, my only question. Work, <laughs> yeah, I just had a, a quick question. I, I also have been surprised at my organization and how well, you know, a, a lot of folks have taken to sort of the video and phone visits, but I think there's still a a population of folks who, you know, are not. And so I'm just wondering if there's any specific efforts to ensure engagement or additional outreach to people that may, you know, may just be suffering in silence, so to speak. I know nationwide, we're concerned about excess deaths from a lot of causes 
other than COVID, just because people are avoiding the healthcare system in general and then may also not be engaging in these other ways. So I'm just curious if there's any initiatives that are focusing on that population. Um, absolutely. So, you know, I think as initially in March and April, we were just scrambling to get all of this set up in place. But, you know, since then, and especially since the summer when the peak went down, um, we've actually tried to incorporate patient choice much more into our scheduling. So now across the system for both primary and specialty care, we leave it up to the patient. So if the patient really wants to come in, because there are patients who just prefer that face-to-face contact, we honor that and the provider sees them even if they don't think they need to come in. And conversely, if the provider wants the patient to come in, but the patient refuses, you know, we'll counsel them that your provider really wants to see you in person but if all you want is telehealth and that's what makes you feel comfortable, we will give you that option. So I think that's really improved our patient satisfaction and each patient choosing how they want to access their healthcare. And then on top of that, we have layered specific outreach. So we did one of our population health pilots. We got a list of vulnerable patients from Alameda Alliance. And so they'd used an internal algorithm to identify patients based off of age, medical complexity, comorbidities that our care management teams um, that report up to Tangerine and the care transitions team as well as some of our ambulatory teams did active outreach to using a script, screening them for any sort of social needs that they may had, offering to relink them to care with their PCP. Um, so that data, you know, was illuminating, I think, just both in the terms of needs that our patients have, but also just how grateful they were with someone making that extra effort to say, hey, we, we're aware of you. We're worried about you. How can we help you come back in? And we're now sort of doing a second phase that branched off that pilot of all of our patients with chronic diseases who haven't been seen in some time to more proactively re-engage them in care. Paula, can you comment? I know it's, it's, it's new that you've opened up to offer the option of in-person or televisit. Do we have any preliminary data on the preferences? I, I have my anecdotal suspicion that it is highly favoring the televisit, telephone visit, but do you have any preliminary data from your side? Uh, for specialty, it just launched 10 days ago, so I don't have the specialty data yet. We should be reviewing it later this month at the Specialty Operations Council. For adult medicine, we've seen a market increase. And so, um, okay. you know, that's where I think when we did the audit before we launched, about 10 to 15% were being done in person. And now that number is closer to about 40%. Okay. Uh, and uh, anecdotally, our, um, uh, you know, uh, in, in our division, I, I trained our doctors to ask it, hey, does this work for you? And, and our, again, our anecdotal uh, uh, data is that patients love this. And uh, the, the downside, however, is, is just that, that they love it so much that uh, you lose that. Sometimes you have to, you need to physically see yep. the patient. And, you know, when you have someone with swelling of their legs, you can't see that necessarily. Mm-hmm. So yep. we're, 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 we're working with others, we're working within our own division to determine kind of the cadence, maybe only two telephone visits in a row before you require so these are the things, know how, uh, as I'm sure you're dealing with at Roots, where you kind of kind of figure out because it's convenient for everybody, but we got to remember that sometimes convenience comes at a cost, and and I think that's that's where we are with this. It's I so I, I'm I'm very happy, and I'm at, by nature I'm precautiously happy. <laughs> Yeah. And I think that when we talk about behavioral health, you know, folks with depression or you know other things that are going on that we see kind of worsening across the board. Um, isolation and that kind of thing that, um, you know, that proactive outreach that maybe, you know, I think most healthcare organizations were used to like, we built it and they come kind of a thing. But, but at this point, it's like, there's a piece that we have to do now to bridge, I think that gap even more than, than before. 
Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. And I think I will say that's where, you know, phone is convenient for us because most of our visits are phone. All of our patients have a phone. You know, addressing that digital divide to get patients on video is hard. But at the end of the day, video will give us so many more options to really connect with the patient. So, you know, if, if I were the state and I was going to make pay parity, I would probably put a time limit on how long you do that for phone visits because it just it's in the best interest of everyone to get patients on the video eventually. Paula, can you comment? And maybe I, I glossed over this data, and I'm going to actually take a tangent and a pause. I'm so happy we're having a quality discussion here in the finance meeting. So, uh, uh, Luis and Lewis, thank you for so much because that's you know that's sort of what we're trying to integrate. Uh, Paula, can you comment on uh, where we are on my chart activations because that goes to disparities too. Just what Nohal was talking about: digital access. So many of our patients don't have hotspots, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Can you comment on that? Um, I'm going to call on Tangerine to give us the latest data. I want to say it was at 12% when I looked at it, but I think that data is already a month or two old now um, among patients who have primary care with us. I will say anecdotally, with the switch to virtual care especially, one of the things we did was train all the providers on how to consult patients about my chart. So it, I actually love it because there's a really, I press a button, I can send the email to my patient, and oftentimes I'm finding my patients will refuse to give other people their email, but if they're like, oh, if you're telling me you're gonna send me this thing and it's not spam, and then I can you know, reach out to you and make appointments and see my labs, I'll do it. So I've had a lot of patients that I've personally activated um, over the course of the last six months who otherwise were just sort of not interested in getting engaged. But Tangerine, you probably have hard numbers. Uh, sure, so let me just say that one of the things that uh, Paula mentioned earlier was the grant that uh, really as Jimmy Cohen as our lead facilitated through the California Healthcare Foundation. That uh, grant has actually staffed one of the health advocates, or sorry, tech advocates in our system. And we've been able to increase uh, the enrollment of my chart through those health, uh, those advocates. So our goal is 12%. Um, as of last month, we were around uh, 8%. So we've been steadily increasing. And that percentage is really of individuals who are assigned to us. Um, we really want to make sure that those individuals who have us as a regular provider are coming to us on a regular basis. And so we've seen that, that increase uh, substantially. One of the other things that we did was as a result of the EPIC upgrade, which really is changing the look and feel of my chart to make it more user-friendly from the patient perspective, we've trained our tech advocates to really sort of focus on that and talk about uh, the great benefits of uh, my chart. I will tell you, however, we still do have people who are resistant to technology overall. And sometimes it doesn't have, it's not really related to whether or not they have the device. Um, they may feel that they're already on enough devices. They feel that perhaps they have access to their provider and to the information uh, via either telephone or video, and so they may be less inclined. In those instances in which people do have uh, technological challenges, either because of language, because my chart is only in English, or because of bandwidth and all of those kinds of things, we are working and are participating in a collaborative with the California Healthcare Foundation where we and other safety net systems are working through 
how to address those challenges that might be uh, really more universal for all of our systems to figure out how we can be more creative and addressing those problems and getting to the root causes to help those particular patients. Thanks, Tangerine. Great. So, it, just one last comment. It seems to me that uh, the nexus here between quality and, and uh, finance is pretty clear. Um, and that is, <clears throat> we need to make sure, we, it's probably uh, some advocacy in the future to make sure that uh, payment uh, respects what we're finding here and what is being found through the nation. But we know that particularly for the patients that we care for, uh, you know, even when we find something that works for them, um, they're not in a privileged position. So we have to advocate uh, that um, we can line up best practice, quality practice with payment. And uh, that may, you know, I hope it isn't a big issue, but, you know, working uh, with poverty uh, for 30 years now professionally, uh Unfortunately, you often have to fight these fights. So I, I just say that's a, another issue that the trustees and, and sounds like staff are really focused on, but the trustees need to be engaged in that. And that's, to me, the nexus here. It's uh, because, you know, we have to have the investment in technology. We have to have the reimbursement lined up correctly. There are probably 20 other issues I'm not thinking of right now that need to happen in order to make this um, sort of quality care for our patients happen. Okay, so with that, I'm going to move us on to B2B. And I don't know if there was a presentation here or just a, a review of where we were with the dashboards. Luis? No, as, we, as we've done in previous months, uh, we, we have our SBU report and then the other dashboards are there for your review, uh, you know, as, as we want to make sure that we're tracking those every single month. And so what's there in the package is the rest of the dashboards for the acute care services, uh, as well as post-acute. And it didn't look like there was an update. There's still, um, th there's some catching up going on because of the transfer um, to these new metrics. But I, don't, I didn't see any big changes. Is that correct? correct? Correct. Yeah, there's still there's still some, you know, some of the metrics do have a lag. And so we're working through uh, some of those with our quality team. But uh, again, we're reporting through, uh, uh, again, the, the, the month of September is what we're showing there in those dashboards. Any questions regarding the dashboards? A lot of data. <laughs> a lot of data, yeah. <laughs> it's good, though. Yeah, and I think it'll just become more trustworthy as we integrate them all, right, um, as that happens. Okay. Um, not hearing anything, I'm going to move on to our action items, which relates to contract approval. Uh, the first contract is the Alameda Inpatient Medical Group, Inc. Is there someone present uh, here to... Dr. Jamaluddin is here, probably you can ask, address any uh, questions you have about yeah. the contract or um, if you want them to just offer some um, uh, general context. Uh, this is AIM or... Yes. This is uh, a hospitalist group who cover uh, Alameda Hospital and they also cover uh, other facilities in our, in our system like John George and uh, uh, Post-Acute. And this is uh, a renewal of their contract for another year. 
Dr. J, this is Taft. I have a question uh, that relates between this item, B1, I think it's B3, I don't have it in front of me, which is traditional behavioral health. Given that we just made our largest strategic move uh, with East Bay Medical Group launched July 1st with the ostensible goal of bringing more physicians in-house, can you talk to me about the selection of the contract windows for traditional behavioral health versus AIM? AIM got a one-year and TBH got two. To 2024. Yeah, um, there, there wasn't. Uh, I mean, there is uh, the bringing into EBMG is our strategic goal now. Aim. We have started to have discussions with them, but we are not uh, there yet. Uh, as far as traditional uh, behavioral health, as you know, we have two uh, groups. We don't have anybody in EBMG as a psychiatrist. We have uh, the employed AHS physician who are unionized under the UAPD, and we have the traditional behavioral health. And uh, we, we have had issues in terms of uh, the work belonging to UAPD and traditional behavioral health, but we have resolved these issues. So that's, uh, that's where we are right now uh, as far as traditional behavioral. It's a big contract, but as you can see, the. Uh, the amount of this contract is is less than it was before, as we are hiring within uh, within AHS uh, and and under the UAPD uh, unionized positions. So this is uh, this is how much I can say about about this. We haven't really looked in the board yet in terms of the behavioral health uh, service line under uh, yeah. EBMG. And I was just wondering, because that, that gives us, that window becomes four years. Do we need four years to contemplate that? Again, AIM got one year, as we're doing. This, and these are just the questions. We've given that, we've given TBH a three-year. We've given AIM one year. And I'm just trying to uh, place this question within the context of the strategy. Yeah. I, that's I, I, that's I, a long window. Hey, Gassan, if I could, if I could speak to this, uh, I was working very closely with the Traditions Behavioral Health, uh, Dr. Bouquet. And so, uh, again, as you know, we have two components to this. We have the PES and uh, Crisis Stabilization Unit, which is staffed by our in-house, uh, our Alameda Health System psychiatrists. And then we have the inpatient unit that's managed, and that's what the contract is for TBH, as well as consultations and liaisons, as well as some of our ambulatory support that we provide. And so what we were looking at here, again, and, and as you said, you, you, you identified that the contract is only a three-year contract, recognizing that it, it is going to affect, uh, going into effect uh, at the completion of the current contract, which ends in February of 2021. And yeah. so it's a three-year agreement that we're looking at. We're shifting and we're going into a hospitalist model in the inpatient service. And we've made adjustments to the um, to the, the work the workflow and, and the scope of work is being defined for not only ambulatory consultation, but also the inpatient to ensure that we're right-sizing it. Um, it. It is a significant reduction from current run rate in previous uh, years and previous contracts. And the reason we have this three-year agreement is, you know, as you recall, we had a uh, there 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 was some work that was being done in the PES where we used to staff that with TBH doctors, and we were working towards bringing that in-house to make sure that we were supporting that with our AHS psychiatrists. For the last three years, we've been trying to fill all those positions, and as of today, we still have not filled them. And so, you know, it, it has proven to be extremely challenging to bring in psychiatrists and to recruit psychiatrists. And so we're giving ourselves time to make sure that we stabilize the PES and CSQ, make sure that we have that in compliance with our 
the agreements that we've made with um, UAPD and 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 an arbitration that occurred in that in that regard, and then once we have that in place, we can always revisit and through EBMG evaluate the behavioral health service line. But at this point, uh, although it may seem like a long time, it it has been extremely challenging just to fill 14.6 FDEs that we need in the uh, PES CSU. So that's why we wanted to make sure that we focus on that, continue to work on that, finalize that process, giving ourselves additional time here to ensure that we continue services within our uh, John George Psychiatric Facility. Okay, so um, that, that I wonder if we wanna take two of these on and move them to a motion. So. Uh, C1A and uh, C1C are the two that are related to behavioral health. Do, do I hear a motion to consider those? Was it 1A? Sorry, I can't see the... Yeah, it's the first one is the uh, Alameda Inpatient Medical Group. Uh, AIM, got it, got it. And that's C1A and C1C is the traditions contract. And since you directed your question to both of those. I figured we might be ready for a moment. Excellent. Yeah. Um, um, I, I, I'm happy to actually, I, I, I just had a question. I'm happy to entertain a motion to approve all three, including the the the, the other one, the third. It's, there's four, actually. Sorry, I looked at it earlier today. Snap Med and Visient. Oh, that's right. That's right. I, I, I would make a motion to approve all four. Um, um, okay. Now that I've heard answers to the questions. Do I hear a second? Ross, Ross, uh, Ross uh, <laughs> muted, muted, yes. I'm not good at lip reading. Okay, we have a second, Ross. Um, discussion? All those in favor of the motion? Aye. 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 Okay, we're there. Um, and then we have uh, staff reports written. Uh, were there any questions regarding... The revenue cycle, I mean, I would just repeat again my appreciation, our appreciation, I think I speak for all of us, um, in the hard work being done with revenue and the improvement that's being seen. Any any other questions or comments for, for Kim on that? Kim, did you want to add anything verbally? Um, I think uh, uh, Terry did a nice job in there of just kind of uh, putting, you know, the, the world from her perspective about how they're celebrating success and how the team's coming together, uh, which, you know, I think is, is, is just really nice to see. So really pleased with, uh, with Terry's leadership and how the whole team's coming together. Yeah. You're getting a CEO thumbs up. But <laughs> I had to there. <laughs> they, they're, they're my email pen pal, so uh, she, she knows them. I'm equally pleased. And I, I would say, if I could, uh, a shout out to, to um, uh, certainly Terry's leadership, but the collaborative. I mean, there are all in, in a report reflects there's a lot of different uh, departments that have increasingly uh, built their their prowess to make this happen. So, you know, care management, uh, perioperative services, we still have some stabilization we're doing there, but really uh, significant and substantial improvement in partnership with Rev cycle, revenue integrity, and a host of other areas supported by the entirety of the system. So, just wonderful work on on everybody's behalf. And they know I look at this around six thirty every morning. So, <laughs> there's a problem. I, they get an email, so it's all good. Uh, but I kudos to all of them. Yeah, 
And thanks for saying that, Tobago, because it is everybody. It's the people who are who are doing procedures and charging for them. It is, you know, IT. It is everybody, because uh, almost every person touches revenue cycle and operations. So, yeah, I have to say, I I, I remember very clearly a year and a half ago, uh, a lot of angst within the system about revenue. Um, I was getting calls from doctors and other folks about. Um, the strong desire to be better at this because people just intuitively knew that we weren't maximizing um, on the revenue side. And so it's so good to see, um, you know, after a very painful install of in, uh, Epic, nothing out of the ordinary, but but painful nonetheless, that us to come out of the other end, you know, very uh, much uh, seeming to maximize the advantage um, on the revenue side. And we also heard today we're maximizing it on the patient care side too. So um, those are all, that's all really good news. And the people we serve really need us to be there in that way. So it's terrific. Really badly. Okay. I'm going to, uh, any, the last item is a discussion. Um I don't think it makes much sense to do much planning for the future, given that the uh, leadership here is going to change dramatically uh, starting next month. I will say that I plan to, was debating whether to make some chair comments tonight or wait for tomorrow or do it both uh, times. I decided to, during my report at our full meeting tomorrow, I will make some comments related to what I think the system needs to continue to focus on in the finance area. Any other thoughts or comments from trustees? Lewis, would you, I know we're maybe at time check, but would, would you mind doing it twice? <laughs> or is that bad? Uh, I'll, I'll defer it to you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you, you, you've chaired this committee for a couple of years. I think we probably can't hear it too many times. It's been your committee, you know? Yeah, I, I, sure. I'll, I'll try to make it a little briefer, and I will. <laughs> no, this, this will be good practice for tomorrow. So I think the first item is obviously uh, this. Uh, the board needs to continue to really focus on um, reporting from staff. Uh, the good news is I feel really comfortable that uh, our CFO and other staff, um, including Luis, COO, um, are, are uh, working hard at uh, providing us reports that are very understandable and, and can direct decision-making. Uh, but I think it's really important to watch actual against budget. It is whether this is the cycle that we, end, we start really slow every year or not, it's troubling that we're behind already. Um, I think Trustee Peterson's Recent comments about the need to stay focused on the operation, the operating margin that we have, is uh, worth continuing to discuss and 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 make a practice. Uh, around the NMB, I've made some of my comments tonight already. I think um, try to be measured, but I I don't think it makes any sense the way we're doing business together. Uh, Alameda County and Alameda Health System. I don't think this needs to be a blame game. It just is not working. And um, it's a source of incredible frustration 
And for those of us who are committed to planning, it makes planning almost impossible to do because you're always staring down unknowns. And when you're in a state of ambiguity, it's almost impossible to do planning. That's just my experience. <laughs> um, you can do reacting, and I think, you know, we're pretty good at reacting. Um, you don't do real good planning, though. Uh, revenue collection is another item that we need to continue to watch, though, as I just said, it's something uh, I think worth celebrating um, so far. And again, I, I trust that we have the right collaborative team members involved. But it's so crucial to uh, this system that we need to make sure there's stickiness there, to use my very uh, sophisticated professional language. Um, and along with revenue collection, there's you know patient uh, billing, but there's also supplemental income, which I've noticed over the three years that I've been here is really um, a source of another source of ambiguity. It's in, it's in such flux. Uh, it, there's so many uh, threats and opportunities uh, that it, it creates its own sort of whirlwind and chaos. And it just feels like it, the wheel could fall off the, the car at any time because some supplemental income source goes away. Um, you know, I take, take for example, DISH. Uh, you know, this, again, that's a, it's a crazy governmental practice of sort of going from year to year to extend something that is sort of essential um, for the organization. So I think it's for the trustees really crucial that we keep our eyes, that the future trustees keep their eyes on this um, and be very diligent in um, uh, asking staff to report out. Again, I, I'm very confident in the reporting we're getting but it's something that trustees need to keep their eyes on as a part of their responsibility. Uh, the next item I have is analytics. And this is something that trustee Peterson and I have spent a lot of our uh, conversations uh, between meetings talking about um, the frustration. And I know this is frustrating for staff too. I think Kim sort of alluded today to, to it at one point when she was talking about, uploading the current financial system um, the, in a way that rolls out uh, an expected expenditure is sort of clunky, right? It's sort of, you, you have to make a choice and um, it doesn't do it in a very sophisticated way. The analytics that uh, Trustee Peterson and I have spent a lot of time talking about are program uh, analytics, understanding what's really happening in different cost centers so that this committee um, and ultimately the full uh, board can make decisions about where to put resources. And we have um, incredible lost leaders in this system. We know they're lost leaders. We actually don't know how deep and wide their loss losses are. And I think it creates the ability for people who understandably love their particular program even if it's a lost leader, to make an argument that it isn't losing money, that it is everything is is okay, um, and I understand. I'm sympathetic with those 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 um, staff members who come from that perspective and other stakeholders. But we really need to get um, the system. Really needs to get to a place where 
is dealing in science with facts. Um, you know, uh, finance is numbers, and it's it's not not debatable uh, whether a program is losing money or gaining money. But if you don't actually have the data, then you can't get there. So the analytical approach, the analytics along with our finance, financial accounting system will help get us there. And we can see already from the reports we received tonight, you know, how uh, talented uh, our staff is. If they have that tool, they will be able to produce incredible um, data that will then allow the trustees to make the hard decisions that come with that. And I think of, you know, specifically, I'm concerned about having programs like the IOP um, and um, on a larger scale, Alameda Hospital, which has a serious volume problem um, and a retrofit uh, challenge uh, for the future on the capital side. And I've been frustrated as a trustee that we haven't really dealt with those, that they sort of clunk along. And there's a cost to that. Um, so I think the future trustees need to be very thoughtful about um, dealing with uh, those sort of situations, hopefully finding solutions. Uh, Alameda Hospital has a value on the, on the island. And I think, you know, you either associate that value more closely to the need in other parts of the county, like Oakland, or you um, go to some urgent care sort of approach and, and get stakeholders who don't want that to happen to change their minds. But something has to change. So analytics can help us get there, and and I I'm uh, I'm rooting for the system, and and in the hope that it can get there. Uh, same thing with John George, um, incredible. Uh, <laughs> uh, Trustee Peterson was giving me some numbers um, that that he's discovered in terms of how much loss we have there, how many administrative days, how many non reimbursement patients we have. It's pretty shocking, actually, and and. So again, it's not that that's not a valuable service. It's we've got to figure out how to um, how deep and wide the problem is, and then come up with creative solutions, including solutions outside of this system. Uh, you know, I I work in the mental health uh, space uh, in my day job, and uh, you know, intensive psychiatric. Uh, in-house services are not the best uh, for people. Um, Community-based uh, crisis prevention programs are much more preferable. And so um, buying those services, maybe as opposed to having every bed John George filled would be an, an alternative. I'm getting there. Trustee, you asked for it, Trustee. <laughs> uh, throughput. Uh, I'd say the same thing with throughput, throughput, that we really need to collaborate with others to get to a system. Uh, they're doing this in Santa Clara County where the health system is collaborating very closely with the housing, uh, permanent supportive housing system in Santa Clara County and taking people who would be normally sitting in beds in their county hospital and putting them into housing with wraparound uh, social services, saving them money. And, and in dramatically improving the quality of life of individuals who are, are suffering. 
Um, so throughput's a big issue here. I think um, we need to resolve this issue of um, release of the $14 million in a capital designation. Um, and that's, I think that's just people coming together and, and coming up with some logical way of, of agreeing and releasing and, and, and not a bureaucratic approach, particularly when we're all in this together. We need to all be in this together. So that's my list. Um, there may be others, but that's the big items that come to me. Um, and it's, you know, um, I, I, I leave, you know, I'm going to leave with some sadness because I, I, as I read all these off, I think I gained some knowledge of all these and look forward to tackling uh, several of them, or if not all of them. Um, but, you know, there's other human beings out there willing to provide public service. I hope um, they take this on with a passion and I'll end there. Any questions? Uh, well said. Thank you. Agreed. And thanks for your service. Thank you. I mean, the last thing I would say, it has to always be about the patient. That, that's the other lesson I've learned here. I sort of came in that way because I work with homeless people and the most people, the, the people getting, you know, really crushed um, by, by systems and inequalities. And um, we have our best moments when we're trying to figure out and when we're figuring out how to help people that come to us for help. All in there. Okay, any other comments or thoughts? Okay, let's end the meeting. Thank you.